आई वी एम वेलकम टू एब्सोल्युटली राइट अ शो दैट सेलिब्रेट्स एंड डीकोड्स माइंड्स ऑफ सम अमेजिंग अचीवर्स आई एम योर होस्ट अदिति फिराना आई एम अ ग्राफोलॉजिस्ट एंड अ हाई परफॉर्मेंस कोच आवर गेस्ट टुडे मैथ्यू क्रेसी इज द फाउंडिंग डायरेक्टर ऑफ द एमआईटी इंटीग्रेटेड डिजाइन एंड मैनेजमेंट मास्टर्स डिग्री प्रोग्राम एन एक्सपर्ट इन प्रोडक्ट डिजाइन एंड डेवलपमेंट एंड अ डियर फ्रेंड ऑफ माइंड As a founder of his venture design turn he has designed invented engineered and manufactured products for startups fortune 500 companies and everything in between entrepreneur turned academician matthew has co-taught collaborative courses at top design and business schools including MIT RISD the Rhode Island School of Design and Harvard Business School in this free flowing conversation we spoke about many things Why does he consider compassion of all the things as the most important quality in an entrepreneur, designer or a person? According to him, when is it a good time to quit? How should you decide between resilience, which is your ability to continue the journey and bounce back and giving up? And my favorite story when Matthew couldn't find a job after his graduation from one of the top schools, RISD Instead of giving up, he applied for a job as a truck driver. Surprisingly, that one interview became instrumental in his journey as an entrepreneur. Check that one out. In today's episode, I discovered as a high performer, he showed a peculiar trait: the courage to continue without knowing, the courage to not know. He kept pursuing his ideas even when they caused friction as he was swimming against the current. I can't wait to get this conversation going. He will join us on the other side of this short break. Stay tuned. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another awesome week on the IVM Podcast Network. If you aren't following us on social media, please do. We're IVM Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And speaking of Instagram, Niharika Pandey joined Cyrus this week on Cyrus Says. Niharika is the strategic partner manager for Instagram India. Great conversation about the plans for Instagram in India. Karanjit Kaur joined the guys at Uncle Please Sit. Another really interesting conversation about the patriarchy. On advertising is dead. Old friend Suchita Salwan showed up. Suchita is the founder. of LBB great conversation she have with Varun definitely do check that out as well Tanvi Lad who is a nationally ranked badminton player was on the habit coach with Ashton Doctor great conversation i would highly highly recommend that the football shit wall guys are back they've been back for a few weeks but definitely do check out their latest episode great great conversation they had on Aditi Surana's absolutely right Manju Sara Rajan was the guest and again a great conversation was to be had over there as always great conversations all across the board check out some of the other stuff like smile india and know your kanun and all things policy all of them have fresh episodes this week but with that let's get you back to your show hi matt i'm so excited to have you on the show this is so interesting i've been waiting to have this conversation for a very very long time well i'm excited to be here aditi thanks for having me thank you now when we speak about your journey as an entrepreneur uh, what are those things that you feel a new entrepreneur should keep in mind Wow. Well, I think um the first thing that comes to mind for me is the importance of creating products and solutions and experiences for people that meet their emotional needs. Okay. I think I was trained growing up, you know, going through college and, you know, studying with all these other people and practicing with people that 
we really were focused on functional needs. You know, does the product perform functionally right. to a certain specification? But what really causes people to buy your products, but more importantly, causes your products to make their lives better is how well your product sort of enlightens them and delights them and makes them feel great emotionally, you know? Okay. So Can you give us an example? That, well, you know, a classic example, I hate to use it, but you know, like Apple. Apple, Apple product, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, there, there are these products that perform a function, right. uh, but they do it in a way that's elegant, that right. is pleasing, right? And yeah, they can be frustrating and yeah, there can be software glitches and things like that. But compared to the competition, they're just really sleek and beautiful and minimal and, and stylish and, and all those things. So uh, we love that, right, as human beings. Um, right. I would go one step further. They look good, right? They look good. We're carrying them around. They make us look good. Yes. So there's a sort of egotistical value to them, a narcissistic value to good-looking products. Cars do this really well. Right. You know, cars, cars they, they make a statement about you. And the successful car companies out there are the ones that have just fabulous design. Design is the discipline that art and design are really what make things How do you differentiate between the two? Art and design? Yep. That's a great question. Mm -hmm. Um, I think about it a lot. You know, my dad was a painter. Okay. And um, my mother, an apparel designer. I think... Designers are basically creating products or creating experiences for people right. that are scalable. Artists mm-hmm. are creating products for people that are not necessarily scalable or hard to scale. So like a painter mm-hmm. will create one painting and it's incredible, right? right? It moves us. It changes our lives when we view it. And hundreds of thousands of people will visit a museum to see that one painting. Right. Design is the opposite. Design is we create products that people are hopefully moved by, but we make a lot of them and we ship it to them. You know, so that's part. I also think that a big difference is that art is about a personal expression by the individual. Whereas design is about utility. uh, Well, I was going to say, so it's about personal expression and it's about maybe some deep emotions that if I'm an artist, the deep emotions that I have, and I need to communicate that or express that to the world. And in doing so, I build a connection and a resonance with my audience. Right. With design, it's not so much a personal expression. It's an expression that you are doing on behalf of other people. In other words, when you design a product, you try to understand other people's needs and emotions. You talk to them, you connect with your, your market, with your stakeholders. Hopefully you develop empathy and, and a relationship and that you use to kind of advocate for them through that development process of creating that product. And I find that a very beautiful process, but at the end of the day, what you've got is a product that represents and expresses other people's needs, not yours as the designer. So it's not you expressing yourself and then building connection. You first build connection when it comes to design and then you build your product uh, to kind of match that connection or to serve on that. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. And reverse that for the artist. Yep. Yeah. 
So uh, what were your challenges? Like, you know, like why product design? Like what was it like your childhood idea of breaking the norms and not doing what people are doing and questioning everything that they're doing? I think, you know, I grew up in this household that was very different. Mm. Uh, we didn't believe uh, in traditional ways of learning, didn't really believe or have faith in academia, mm. even though my father was a professor um, and very accomplished academically. Um, uh, but I, so I just learned differently and I chose my own kind of learning path and that really upset my teachers. So I got terrible grades. Okay. Um, but what I was doing was exploring my world. And mm. in that process, I would take things apart all the time, always taking things apart. Then I started putting them back together. Then I'd put them back together wrong. But sometimes mm. when I put them back together wrong, I liked it better than the original right. product, you know? And that's when I started really going off the deep end, where instead of taking them apart in attempt to put them back together, I took them apart for the raw for the raw components. And then I would just build my own thing, you know, all together. Um, So I was doing that at a very young age. I had no idea what career was available that would allow me to continue that practice. Um, And so I abandoned it for the most part. I never thought of it as a career. I kept doing it. Uh, But I really was prepared to go into the fine arts. So I, in high school, uh, you know, I had completed a year's worth of college courses because at the college my dad taught, uh, which was part of the University of New Hampshire, and uh, loved. I was ceramics and photography and nice. you know, drawing and painting, and I'm you know I, I I was always playing piano and and just very creative. Got to Rhode Island School of Design. Actually, I was rejected from UNH. That's okay. I'll, I'll revisit that a little. I'll revisit that a little later. Okay. It's one of my okay. greatest failures. Um, so, uh, uh, when I got to RISD, I learned about a discipline called industrial design, and that's basically a bad name for product design. Sure. And I fell in love with it. It was exactly what I wanted to do. That's sort of how I ended up as an industrial designer. So I want to ask about those rejections, you know, because when you are not, somebody who can fit in and somebody who is like, you know, constantly questioning, it's annoying for the people who are holding the norms, people who are uh, kind of, uh, you know, the authority in making sure that everyone else follows the rules. Now, what were the challenges of that journey? You know, after you figured out, you know, that moment of love happened. And I think then you knew that, you know, this madness has some space to happen. But what was before that? Well, it was, um, believe it or not, that was the easiest kind of um, part of me that didn't fit, that was the easiest to cope with. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, you know, it was the, it was the constant uh, belittling of me as a student by my teachers, mm-hmm. uh, the erosion of my confidence that occurs when your teachers are failing you or giving you Ds or writing notes home to your parents um, as I mentioned, I was very, very different than the mm. other kids. Uh, my parents, uh, we had a beautiful garden every year. My mother made all our foods from scratch. All our breads were handmade. Wow. Uh, she made my clothing, um, you know, cut my hair. <laughs> so sweet. Imagine, imagine that kid going to school. Yeah. 
with a bunch of kids who are buying all their clothes from, you know, some big box retailer. Mm -hmm. They all are homogenized. There's a commonality to them. So, um, so I learn differently. I refused to kind of uh, fall in line, to follow that, to, to, to believe in their lessons for me. Um, I was ostracized by my peers uh, because I was different looking. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I was emasculated. I was bullied. And that's the culture I came out of. Uh, where at the end of that, you know, going into high school, uh, I really didn't believe uh, in myself. Well, I didn't believe I fit in this world at all. Wow. Uh, so, so yeah. you know, and then I'm just going to fast forward many years. And when you started your own program, how did you look at kids who were misfits? Were you like Professor Xavier's from X-Men? I said, were you... Professor Xavier from uh, X-Men who really believed in all misfits and all people with superpowers to come together. And you're like, I'm going to make, make a center where everybody's going to figure their own voice. Was that your case? Exactly. Yeah, it was. Well, you know, it didn't start out that way. It started out uh, with a very kind of clear um, pedagogy, right? A clear kind of curriculum that we were going to teach to empower people to become kind of inspired leaders, inspired creators, right, of, of, of product and experiences and problem solvers. Um, but what I didn't realize when I was given this opportunity to create the program, I was also given this opportunity to select every single student that's admitted into the right. program. And that was a big surprise. Why and was so... You're not expecting yourself to do that? You thought someone else would no. do that for you. Okay. No, remember, I'm very naive to academia. I have no <laughs> idea how it works. So as far as I'm concerned, I thought MIT, the admissions department of MIT would select the students for the program. Yeah. I had no idea. Okay. Well, this was a huge opportunity. So first thing I did was basically design a process to admit students okay. that would allow me to find those misfits around the world, those people that think differently, right? That have lived differently. And that- your passion for this is my fascinating part of your story. You know, you're really, really passionate. Every time you speak about how that student who struggled, who couldn't manage, uh, one of her guests on the Absolutely Right show was Honey Bajaj. And she shared her story, how tough it was for her to break through all the norms. But when she connected with you, uh, she found out that she still has the that sliver or the gap through which she can really figure her way through. And, and it's incredible to see her now. And, you know, I'm yeah. sure many students like her who would have figured their way out only because you believed in them. Tell us some yeah, stories I, like that. Well, thank you. And, you know, I, what, what I love about the story also is that, so when I created this new process, right, and it, Honey was in the first cohort. Okay. <laughs> okay. And Honey was the archetype of the designer. So entrepreneurs designers, and business people, engineers, engineers and designers. So those three kind of buckets. And Honey was this archetype designer. And, you know, designers are not known for their high test scores. 
Right. They're not known for their ability to get into a school like MIT, right. where they're taking the very highest performers in terms of test taking. Right. I have never felt that test taking was a very good predictor of a person's success. Can you repeat And that so, line? I think everybody should listen to that line one more time. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And 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 why do I feel that? Well, um, I was a victim of that. Sure, yeah, my whole life. of course. I was basically told I'm a loser because I couldn't test well. Right. And it's not that I couldn't test well. It's just I didn't I didn't care to test well. Sure. I thought it was a waste of time. Um, so, Honey, going back to Honey, her story is really interesting because it took. She was actually the student that caused a six-month argument between me and MIT. And you held on to that argument. I finally won that argument in <laughs> August, three weeks before Honey had to show up on campus. Oh, I, I finally was able to send her an acceptance letter. And ever since then, we have continued to basically prove that people perform at MIT on par or even better hmm. than those folks that test really, really well. Our, our students perform just as well as all the others, and we really don't think about tests or GPAs or anything like that. We really just try to evaluate their character, right? How, how much love is in their heart? How compassionate are they? How much have they taken action on those things? Right. Express that, you know, affected others with those, with those kind of outlooks. Um, and, and then, uh, you know, the other thing is really to sort of their ability in their particular discipline, you know, are they a talented designer? Are they a talented engineer? Are they a talented? And we look, we figure that out by looking at a portfolio. So the whole admissions process, we don't yeah. really even, you know, we, we ask for GPAs and, and GRE scores and stuff, but that's just sort of for the records. So Matt, you know, what you're saying is very interesting also in terms of the world that we wish to create. At some level, we believe that people with more empathy, people with more compassion, people who are more action-oriented and believe in what they do. But then there is this whole idea about measurement of that success, who is yeah. more successful and who is not. Now, after having gone through the process and being a program designer yourself, like how do we look at this? Not only for an institute, but you know, in a real world, how do we look at this? Because I feel a lot of anxiety and a lot of stress that people experience actually comes from this fact that they feel these intangible needs, but all success is decided and celebrated only when they reach a number, a tangible yeah. objective, when they buy their homes or have own the, those fancy cars. Now, how do you really, how, what would you tell that person or how would you look at that as a, as a solution? Well, the first thing I'd say is that the reason that we do things the way we do now is that it's easy, right? True. Think about how difficult it is to look beyond test scores to evaluate a human being's value, True. right? That's very, very difficult. It That's also means that you're able to understand what makes a person successful. Most yeah. of the people in academia and in admissions, they are... They're there 
because they want a structured, sheltered environment with all the answers provided to them. Sure. And therefore, they're going to select people that kind of work in that mode, right? And But that's not what makes the world roll, you know, turn. That's not what causes innovation. That's not what causes, you know, inclusion and action on, you know, social issues and, and, you know, environmental issues. Those people tend to be disruptive. They think differently. They're full of enthusiasm. They're full of energy. They take action. They're not worried about failure. They're not worried about being measured, right? They want a result. They want improvement. They want an experience to occur from the actions they take in the world. Mm-hmm. That's really what we want to attract, attract in, 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 you know, and put into roles of responsibility in our society. Now, it's very hard to find or it's, it's hard to quantify that type of person. But here's what we've done. We've decided that skills can be taught, but character is very difficult to change. So what we try to do is we try to look at a person's character. And so we have a bunch of attributes that we have uh, kind of, um, you know, a list of attributes that when you all add them all up, you probably have someone who has integrity is loving and compassionate Mm -hmm. and has the drive and tenacity to get their message accomplished, you know, their work accomplished. Um, And then whatever skills they're missing, we teach that. Everything we do in life, everything that's new will will actually cause uncertainty and fear. Right. And your ability to persevere through that I think is directly related to your ability to suffer, your resilience, right? So, uh, you know, I use the word suffering, but it's really about being resilient, right? right? And, right. and not giving up. Uh, and that's really what has, I th- that and being, and, and just loving people, those two things. If you can do those two things, I guarantee you'll be successful. So let's talk about resilience a little bit more. Like, what do you think is is underneath resilience? And you must have seen people giving up and, and not, you know, following through their ideas. Now, what do you think are the critical moments when it comes to resilience? Well, I think there's a, you know, for many, there's a fear of how they're being perceived. Hmm. Um, you know, sometimes I see people that are working hard on something over the course of several years Mm -hmm. and they will be criticized by their parents or by their friends. You know, why are you still doing that? You know, you, you're, you're getting left behind. Right. Right. And, and, you know, you look at your friends, look at all your friends, look how successful they are. These are things, these are common things I think that parents and, you know, relatives and friends say to each other. And, um, and that's just ridiculous. Right. I mean, I've been theoretically behind my whole life. Sure. Right. Um, until one day I woke up and I'm like, you know, hey, I have a house on an island. Uh, you know, I have incredible family. I see my kids and my wife all day long. You know, I have a beautiful lifestyle. I'm, you know, financially terrific. Right. And all of it came from no one. 
but myself. I created my house, my wealth, everything, my career now, you know, which is relatively new. And I, but the, in the process of getting there, there was no way of measuring my performance. Right. No one, many people are like, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're wasting your time, Matt, time to get a job. You got kids, you got to worry about blah, you know. Might, this, let's take a moment and like talk about this because you chose actively to become a parent who would take care of your daughters and you chose your, you, your entire career or, or work was built around your kids. So talk about that because I think that's a very different approach to parenting. Yeah, no. So it wasn't um, the most uh, mature kind of uh, <laughs> vision at first, but I'll tell you how it started. Okay. Um, in my, because of my childhood and the way that I was treated. Right. I, and, and because my important, my parents are so important in my life. Um, I knew at a very early age that my family and my, my kids were going to be the absolute first priority period. Okay. And that kind of clarity is actually quite liberating. Of right. Course, of course. And I didn't, if I didn't, if we were poor, but loving and together and, you know, flourishing kind of spiritually and, and fine. Um, but that said, in my probably when I was probably about 20, I said, okay, my plan is this. I'm going to be independently wealthy by the time I'm 30. Okay. Uh, my first child will be born when I'm 31. Okay. With and, the time I will be, okay. and I'll be a full-time father for the rest of my life and retire. So you decided yeah. to do that. At yeah, 20, that when you, want to, you want to retire and take care of your child. That's all I wanted to do. Oh my God. Yeah, and so uh, of course it didn't quite play out that way. Okay, what happened? Well, I got out of RISD and I couldn't get a job, so I went to Rhode Island School of Design. The acronym for that is RISD. Right. RISD, very fabulous art school in Providence, Rhode Island. Couldn't get a job, and my teachers didn't like me at RISD either. By the way, okay. you know, I was just this irreverent, you know, independent thinker, wouldn't conform. Um, uh, ironically, you know, a few years later, they hired me to teach a course. I was But I love, you know, I love them, right? They, it's like, it's like Hogwarts, right? Oh, it's a wow. magical world that's disconnected from the muggle world, this awful <laughs> reality, right? Okay. It's a beautiful place to be. But I couldn't get a job. So I, um, I ended up becoming entrepreneurial. And mm-hmm. Um, I was working, I got a, a, a part-time job working in a furniture store, selling furniture. Okay. Uh, yeah. Wow. I actually, the way I and got that job. Been, that would have been a tough one. Like after all your education, you're like, okay, I got to sell furniture now. Yeah. Well, it's even worse than this. It's even worse. So it, you, you know how I got the furniture job? I, I was replying. I went to apply for a job as a truck driver. So I went to that company to apply with a truck driver. I go to this interview and I have my portfolio, you know, and I I walk in for my interview and the guy's like, all right, um, so do you have any felonies? And I'm like, no. He's like, is your license suspended? I'm like, no. He's like, well, I think you you, you can drive a truck for us. And is there anything else you want to tell us? And I said, well, I brought my portfolio. He's like, what the hell's a portfolio? So I open up my program. I'm showing him all my inventions, you know, and I had a patent by then. And, oh you know, God. and he's just like, okay, wait a minute. You're not getting the truck driver job. I'm like, you're kidding me. No. I need a job. 
And he's like, yeah, but wait, wait here. And he disappears and comes back with this guy. And this guy's like, come with me. And I go with him and we go up these stairs into, in this warehouse and we open up this door and we walk into this room and it's his office. Okay. And it's full of Italian furniture, just gorgeous furniture. And he's like, we're starting a furniture store. Will you help us? We'd love you to like help design the place and, you know, but wow. we'll hire you as a salesperson. Um, but you'll, there'll be lots of creative things you can do. So that was my first job. That person, uh, his name's Neil Yanofsky, uh, is a very close friend, oh, a mentor, became a mentor. Um, he also became uh, president of Dunkin' Donuts and uh, of Panera Breads and built Panera Breads to what it is. But uh, long story short, um, Neil allowed me to sell some product, a clock that I designed in the furniture store. Oh, nice. And so I got a few showrooms around Boston after that. And then I got some showrooms in New York City. And before you know it, I was in the clock business. And so I quit that was the job. The business because you went yeah. for a truck driver's interview. Exactly. And so that's the that's moral of the story. You know, you just don't know where your paths are going to open wind up. up. But if you never give up, right, don't give up on that dream, that vision, or what, what you're passionate about. That is the power in every one of us, is that unique individual path and being true to it. If you can sense it, and that takes some, that can be hard to do, especially when there's all kinds of people talking in your ears about how you're on the wrong path. It's hard to sense the right path. So you have to learn, to, and it's a quiet voice, that path. Yep. It speaks in a quiet voice. So you have to be very, very thoughtful about it. But quiet but but consistent, all, nevertheless, it keeps coming back until and unless you don't act upon it. That's true. That is so true. <laughs> yeah. So, so anyway, being went from there, created a, new, a few other companies. And uh, one was pretty, pretty successful. And okay. by the time I was 30, um, uh, what I was doing was I had built this house on the water. Uh, I had a studio in the lower level, you know, about 1,200 square feet. I had clients that I was designing products for. I was manufacturing products for my clients in China, Um, you know, flying to China, you know, and just had a wonderful consultancy. Sophie was born when we were 31 and wow that's almost like your life falling in place the way you had thought about it okay yeah I mean I wasn't independently wealthy but I was able to be as much of a full-time father as I wanted to be Wow. or as much as Sophie could tolerate me (laughs) (laughs) so I have this question about about quitting okay now I feel being uh, an entrepreneur myself and by running the business, you keep pursuing an idea and you reach a point where you realize that the idea might not go ahead. Like, you know, your vision is still there and you really want to move forward. But this idea, or this form of this idea might not survive through the grind. Now, how do you decide it? Like, you know, what are the parameters you should think about before quitting? Because sometimes, you know, you need to, for example, end a marriage to start a new chapter in your life. 
end that business to move to the next business. So there's also the other part of resilience, which is very confusing for people. They're like, oh, I'm resilient. And I, I see a lot of people who do not give up on things that are not working for them to do something different because one, this is a, the devil that they're aware of, familiar with. But at the same time, they believe, what if I give my best shot and then something would shift and move and then something will happen magically. So one is resilience. And secondly is restarting or rebooting. Can yeah. you talk about that? Like how sure. do you- That's a really great question. Um, I've always been really, really good at quitting. And um, you've been resilient at the same time. So you're the right person to ask this question. Yeah. Um, and the first thing that comes to mind is bike racing. So I'm a competitive cyclist was semi-pro in my twenties and, uh, in a bike race, a bike race is this sort of event, right? It's a, it's kind of like a product. It's a, it's an experience. And, um, back then, if I didn't feel I could win the race three quarters way through the race, I just quit. No one else would do that, but I would. I'm like, no, I got better. And people talk about it. No matter what happens, you finish your race. You like, you know, I've yeah, read so exactly. many uh, articles yeah. and so many videos on that, right? You keep watching on YouTube. Like, you finish your race. You never stop there. Right. And so uh, that was very different. Uh, and for, you know, I was very different than the other competitors. It was really, I was in it for a result. I was in it to win. That's mm-hmm. it. That's the only reason I was there. Didn't okay. really much enjoy it. I was very scared. It's dangerous. You can get hurt. You know, I'd crash. It's expensive. Things like that. Um, and uh, I actually ended up taking a break from riding uh, when Sophie was born for okay. about five or six years. When I came back, I was so – I lined up with all these guys that I hadn't seen in six years. Mm-hmm. And they were like – they welcomed me back. I was – and I, I realized this is so special. I am with all these guys that train all week long, that shave their legs, that pour money into their bicycles, that put so much energy into this because we love this experience. We love this. I hadn't raced in six years. I won that race that day. Really? The reason was that I was in the moment. Mm. I loved being there. I didn't want to quit. Because I loved every moment of it. I loved the suffering. I loved the guy in front of me. And if he beat me, I'd love him for that. Right. (laughs) And when we came down to that final sprint, all I could think about was how much I loved turning those pedals over. And as a result, the the efficiency of my pedaling was improved. Uh, You know, everything, it was just um, a magical experience that imprinted in my mind. And from that point on, my cycling was on a different level because I would go into that place in every that's race. A great example, man. That's like such a such an easy thing to connect to. And that's so true. So your willingness and your connection, like your love, I, I, I call it flirting. You have to keep flirting with your idea. And if you stop flirting and it becomes monotonous, then you know that's something you need to change or you need to change the project. So like for me, that is like the the guiding principle that, so I, I keep saying this every time I look at a handwriting sample, I blush. And for me, that is a sign that, oh, I still have the romance going with it. <laughs> so here we are talking about your handwriting. So what questions would you like me to answer? So, okay, I do have a question. 
Um, and um, I, I don't know if I should preface this question or just ask it, um, but I think we're to, so one of the things I think I have understanding about myself is my value to others. And so the question I have is, um, what is my value to others? What is, and, and, as a, and the reason I want to know that is because I'd like to understand more about what my purpose is, my true purpose. I think I know what it is, but I'm just not sure. I don't know how I resonate with others. I don't know when we're talking right now, what is it that you're relating to in me? You know, um, what do I, yeah, so what is my value so that I can continue to improve and augment that and not think about things that are superfluous? Sure. So every time you speak about value and in a way you're also implying self-worth, you know, the way you look at it and what worth people find in you. Now, that whole idea and that whole dialogue is one ever changing. And I'm going to make it, I'm going to give it a little intangible uh, twist here. But the idea of self, you know, Carl Jung said it famously. He said, the only purpose in life is to express every part of yourself. And that does not mean that what you know about you or what you're unaware of at this point in time, but that's a lifelong journey. You put yourself through different situations and how you tackle. So it's not the worth that can be experienced by others. But as you spoke about the the experience while cycling, it's about how much your process of giving your 100%, your willingness, your authenticity and your connection matters to you in the moment creates the worth for the other person. So if you are not invested, if you are not fully present, if you're not interested, then the same experience won't be creating any connection. But when you Mm -hmm. are, you know, even if you say two lines or if you don't say anything at all, the connection is extremely deep. And that's what happens in relationships. You know, most of the, the advice about how to be positive or successful is about what do you say to yourself? And I always disagree with that. I'm like, no matter what you say, which words you use, that's not going to help after some time. Because how you feel and how authentic you are in that moment decides and in a way designs your entire experience. Now, you have been this person who questioned yourself a lot and questioned everybody else around you a lot. And that questioning for you is inquiry, which is a great thing. But when people look at it and if they find it is about you doubting them, then the connection that you build over the years suddenly, I can't say breaks, but it kind of goes through this phase or chaotic phase, I may say, when they think that you are doubting them. And this is where I feel the question comes from, because though you see the value in their life being built, you don't see that they can, you find them not counting on that value. You're finding them, you constantly feel people around you kind of check whether they should or they should not. And that comes from the fact that you question a lot. Now, the difference between questioning and doubting is the, the probably the tone of voice or the intent behind it. Are you aware of it? No, I'm not. That's so, a, so, wait. So you're, uh, so you're saying that because I'm a critical thinker, uh, you come across as a critical person. You come across yeah. as a critical person. 
But it is about critical thinking where you are questioning things and you are not doing it to the other person. You question things. You love questioning things and, and questioning norms and anything or anywhere you feel you're settled or your daughter is settled or your wife is settled or anybody in the in the institute, if they are like settled, you're like, why are you settling? You can, you know, stretch yourself here and you can go a little deeper in this. Now, when you do Absolutely. that, people find that you are being critical where you're actually operating from critical thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is where the gap is because people look up to you and they want you to agree with them or admire them and, you know, really praise them, which you do. But when you become critical in your thinking and if they perceive you as a critical person, it's kind of a risky position because your opinion matters and now you're not happy with them. So they feel very uncomfortable. So I think your idea of self-worth comes from there. Yeah. Interesting. Hmm. Very insightful. Good stuff. (laughs) Thank you. What else? What else can I talk about? Oh boy. Let's see. Let's see what I write here. Um, well, uh, let's see. Am I on the right path? That's a tough question to answer for anybody. Like right path or wrong path uh, can't be decided for a person like you who is committed to the process of walking. You know, you're not technically, and I'm going to say this, you're not technically interested in where you go. You use your results as your goalposts to only align yourself so that you remain in the process. It's like, you know, people who are football players, they want to make sure that they keep playing matches so that they keep doing their practice. So the matches do not define them, but the, the matches actually allow them to stay put with their routine of doing the practice. So if you're on a right path or not, for a person like you, I would say the path is the goal. So for you, it doesn't matter where the path takes you. So as long as you are being as critical as you want, a non-conformist as you want, if you are really adding value every day, if you're touching lives every day, then actually it doesn't matter to you what path it is, like going for the truck driver's interview. And after all these years, and I must say, looking at your writing, that that quality about you of jumping in with both feet and not worrying about where the current going to take you has not changed. And I feel that takes some commitment to not change the innocent curiosity after, you know, going through life and, and living through the entire span. You're still curious and you're still willing to, in a way, risk it all. Yeah, you know, I, I call them adventures. I love going <laughs> on adventures. Yes. And sometimes an adventure, you know, just doesn't work out, you know? And um, uh, I think my appetite for that uh, has not diminished yet. I I suspect it will at some point as I get older or whatever, but um, right now I'm I'm still pretty thirsty for, and so, you know, I mean, you know, one thing I'm, I think about quite often is what is that next adventure? Yep. You know, I have every adventure that one completes um, gives you additional tools and additional uh, abilities, right? Um, and I think this mm-hmm. last adventure with MIT has, because of the vast amount of suffering 
There's a correlation between suffering and tools acquired. Yeah, that's so (laughs) Um, true. And because people avoid suffering, they do not get their tools to upgrade themselves. It's almost like, oh my God, I don't want to go through this pain and then I can't go through, grow through this pain. And that's exactly where people get stuck up. True. Yeah. And the trick is not to go through so much pain that it crushes you, that you can't recover. Yep. So that's, you can go too much through too much. You can suffer too much that it crushes your soul and you just can't get up and get going. So, so it's, this is very much. Previous, you answered my previous question. Sorry to interrupt you, but you're saying that, oh, if your soul is getting crushed or you're feeling that this is not what I want and your heart is not there, then change your path and figure out and realign again. You are good. <laughs> wow. Thanks. <laughs> That's beautiful. Okay, right. so I would like to, on, on the note of adventure, I would like to ask you last two questions of our show. First okay. one, okay, so first one yes. is, you know, we speak about failures and you on your program detail have written this line where you say, uh, we celebrate failures. My question to you is, which was your favorite failure and why? Let's go back to me getting into college. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, this is a great story, I think, because um, so I told you that I I'd completed five uh, college courses as a right. senior, junior and senior in high school at the university where my father was a professor. Right. I applied to two colleges, Rhode Island School of Design and the University of New Hampshire, mm-hmm. which is where my father was teaching. Right. And I applied specifically to the art program at the University of New Hampshire. Hmm. Uh, Well, uh, I was rejected from UNH. Okay. And I mean, it was mind boggling. My grades from my five college courses in the art department were all A's. Okay. Rejected. And I still got rejected. And my father was a faculty member there. Normally, they give faculty children a little bit of a, you know, break. I got a hard reject, you know. So here's how I handled it. I went to my father's office. I picked up his phone and I dialed the extension for the dean of admissions. (laughs) (laughs) I called him up and I introduced myself and I asked him, what are you thinking? Yeah. What are you doing? Wow. Okay. My father created the Bachelor of Fine Arts program here. My, you know, I, I, got, I got straight A's in all the courses I took. He says, oh, my God. Yeah, this is nuts. Let me look into it. Okay. So, and he called back my father a couple of days later, and he looked into it, and it ends up that the art department at UNH was upset with my father at the time. And they rejected me. So they didn't want you to be a part of the course. Yeah. Oh, okay. A few weeks later, I got into RISD. So it didn't matter because that was my first pick, obviously, right? World-class art school or kind of, you know, (laughs) school, crappy art department. And you had done five programs already. So you knew their art program. Oh, yeah. I knew their art program pretty well. I mean, I, th- yeah, uh, there's a little few more complexities to this story. But uh, but that was a big failure that mm-hmm. I love 
I love that I got rejected from UNH. I love, especially now where I'm at now, you know, mm-hmm. as in my current role. And um, it's just this great example mm-hmm. of how academia has it all wrong. They, <laughs> it, they, yeah. So that's one. Okay. <laughs> my last question of our show is, you know, being the person that you are, and we've learned so much about your adventures. Now, there are so many moments where you make tough choices or go through this grind or go through this churn that you create for yourself more than anyone else. Now, do you have any mantra? Do you have any quote, any any statement that you think about or you kind of remind yourself of while going through this? When I'm going through tough times? Yep. Well, I don't really, I mean, I, I actually developed a mantra for the first time in my life about two years ago when I went through a very difficult time uh, okay. with the program. Okay. And that really revolved around um, my role uh, and how I perceive myself in that role and how other people perceive me in that role. Okay. Um, and by that, I mean the students perceive me in a certain way. Hmm. And that was very different than the way that I perceive myself. I saw myself as one of the misfits and hmm. that we are all here as a, it's a miracle. We're all here together, sure. you know, and you are no worse or better than me. And I'm no worse or better than you at any of this stuff. It's just all about energy and spirit and ability to, yeah, you know, and it's, you know, I, 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 I really believe, I don't believe in hierarchy. I don't believe in titles. Um, I like, you know, a more egalitarian approach to, to, to how we do things, but that's not how anyone else sees things. Sure. Sure. <laughs> and if you're operating in a false reality, like I was, yeah. it can lead to massive disappointment, like just crushing sadness that I experienced. And I had to develop a mantra. And the mantra, ironically, was um, this. Um, Matt, you've created a tribe and you are the leader of that tribe. Mm. You're not part of the tribe. You're the leader of the tribe. And it changed the way I behaved. And it changed the way that I expected other people to express affection towards me. Because I felt a distance. I felt left out of this family that I'd created. I created a family and yet I'm, I'm, I'm kept at arm's length. Can you imagine how that must feel? It was just very, very saddening. And, but once I came to terms, it took a very close friend of mine, um, an ex-student mm-hmm. of all, uh, and she sort of said, Matt, you're not one of the tribe. You are the chief. Right. And that's a difference. You've got to get that under. Your... So that's, that's, uh, that helped me through that period. But on a day-to-day basis, when I'm experiencing difficulty, um, I really think of, you know, I, I have a very strong belief in I think the energy of the universe and, and I see love, at least that's the most simplistic 
word or form I can think of, but love to me is the energy that is universal. And so I try to uh, develop empathy for people, even though they may be attacking me. Uh, And I, I, so I look at things in terms of love and fear and I develop empathy for those who are feeling fear because I tend to feel less and less of it as I get older. So I have less and less tolerance for behaviors that are uh, a result of fear. So what I try to do is get empathy for the fear and try to eliminate that fear in that person, which is very hard to do when they're attacking you. And the way to get rid of the fear is to love them. So you have to love someone who's attacking you. So that's what I try. That's a tough one. And well said, like that's, something that you know to imbibe that it's a deeper personal spiritual journey to to actually provide love and the nurturing environment to the person who is hating you or attacking you in the moment yes but if you're good at suffering and a masochist (laughs) it comes pretty easily no (laughs) no 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 matter how easy you make it feel it's not easy to in any way it's very hard it's very hard. And, uh, you know, I, I get angry just like anyone else in that. Yeah. Thank you so much, man. This was wonderful. Thank you so much. Oh, for my pleasure, Didi. It was wonderful. And just always such a treat to be with you in Thank any you. way, digitally Thank or in person. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. So, uh, you know, on this note, uh, thank you everybody for joining in for this episode and we will see you soon. We rarely ask this question to be or not to be. But we often ask to quit or not to quit. Last week on the Absolutely Right podcast, episode number 62, I spoke about resilience, your ability to not give up, to bounce back from any crisis. We celebrate resilience and not caving in. But how do you know when is it the right time to quit? If you reach that point, then how do you evaluate the situation? How do you come to terms with it? It could be a relationship, job, business, or any other situation in life. On our Friday episode, let's talk about when giving up is a good idea. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Absolutely Right. Please review, comment, and share this podcast with anybody who can get benefited by these conversations. Also, send me your questions on my Instagram handle at Aditi Surana. For the entire month of October, we are doing a special awareness drive about calmness called Kama Sutra with Aditi Surana. Every day for 12 minutes, I do a handwriting-based meditation process on my Instagram handle. All the details are mentioned on this link, aditisurana.com slash kamasutra, C-A-L-M. If you like this podcast, then don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on IBM Network. You can listen to us on the IBM Podcast app or ibmpodcast.com. You can also follow us on our social media. We are at IBM Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Let's connect on Friday. Till then, happy writing. Hi guys, this is Ayushi. And I am Ritasha. And welcome to Agla Station Adulthood. It's a fun podcast we've got going on and we'd love for you to tune in and enjoy with us. Join us as we stop at various stations and discuss different topics that seem to be bothering us and hopefully Dating, you as relationships, well. relationships, beauty, just being an adult, lots of different things. We don't have a great grip on it, but we've done okay so far. 
कैच अगला स्टेशन अडल्ट एवरी थर्सडे ऑन दी आई वी एम एप दी आई वी एम वेबसाइट और वेर एवर एल्स यू गेट योर पॉडकास्ट है चैलेंजेस दे ऑफन फेस Are you wondering about the future of restaurants, film, education, technology and everything else in between? Hi, I'm Gauri Devidyal, best known for being one of the brains behind the table, an award-winning restaurant in Bombay. One thing my life as a restauranter has given me is the opportunity to meet with some truly inspiring people, most often just by chatting with strangers at the community table. And that's what this podcast is about. It's about learning the new dimensions of business and understanding how different people swim this sea. It's an opportunity for me to pick their brains and ask them all the questions on my mind, whether it's about learning from their past experiences or talking about future trends. Through their journeys, stories and insights, I hope you too, like me, will come away inspired and energized. So come, join me every Wednesday with your favorite drink because this round is on me.